What's up, North, Northeast? How y'all doing? I said, what's, oh, there we go. What's up, Northeast? How y'all doing? Man, y'all are my people. Do y'all know that? Like, I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Y'all ready to dive in? Cool, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. So this morning, I want to start with a little thought experiment. All right? So would you go with me on a little trip? Would you close your eyes? All right? I want to ask you a question. I want you to ponder on this. Who do you want to be? In a perfect world, who are you? Are you strong? Strong enough to determine the outcomes of your life? Are you becoming stronger progressively as you eliminate your weaknesses? Are you fearless? Becoming more and more secure in your future as you overcome the obstacles of your past? Are you facing your failure and plotting alternate courses to ensure that you never fail again? Now ponder with me, in the same line of thinking, who are you now? Are you strong or are you fragile? Easily blown by the winds of circumstance and gusts of depression? Are you afraid of who you are becoming because you are keenly aware of who you have been? Are you weak? A compilation of your inadequacies and failures? Terrified that people will see your weaknesses and determine your value accordingly? And what are you going to do with the gap between who you are and who you desire to be? Who are you? Strong or weak? Fearless or fragile? A combination of all of it, seesawing in between triumph and failure. Who are you? You can open your eyes now. And let me ask a different question. Who does God need you to be? Does he need you to be powerful or does he want you to be frail? Or let me ask it more like this. What does God need from you? You know how I would typically answer that question? Oh God, I think God needs me to be strong. I think he needs me to fight really hard to overcome my sin. I think he needs me to be ingenuitive so I could bring about his kingdom. I think he needs me to be effective in my efforts so that I can help bring about his purposes. But let us consider really quickly what we said about God last week. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and almighty, if he is what we said, holy, sovereign, eminent, and eternal, then why would that God need us to be strong also? So then, dare I ask the question, does God need for us to be powerful, innovative, and fearless, or is that what we need from ourselves? Today I want to ask us a question. And it's a scary question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Today I want to ask us, what if God doesn't need us? What if he doesn't need us to be strong or sturdy? What if he doesn't need us at all? 
Matter of fact, that's going to be our title for the day. What if God doesn't need us? And in this sermon, I want to chase down two answers to that question. Number one, if God doesn't need us, he can work out our baggage as he uses us. And number two, if God doesn't need us, he can work through our weakness for the sake of our good and his glory. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Jesus, we need you. We need you so desperately, God, and we are so glad that your word says that when you see the crowds gathering, you have compassion on them. You see us weak and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, and you step into that space. So God, we are grateful. Lord, would you be exalted? Lord, would you feed your sheep this morning? God, move in power. Holy Spirit, we invite you now. We pray all this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. So before we answer the question, what if God doesn't need you? We need to first answer the question, does God need you, right? Like, let's follow a flow of progression. Here in verse one, we are picking up in the middle of a conversation, right? Last week, we heard the first half of the conversation, right? Moses is minding his business as an assistant shepherd when the God of the universe speaks to him from a burning bush. The text tells us that when Moses saw the bush burning, he turned aside, and it tells us that God called Moses by name. And what we have learned in the conversation to this point, we see at the end of chapter two, God has heard the groanings of the people of Israel. He has remembered his covenant. He sees the people, he knows their pain, and he knows exactly what he's going to do about it. And so let us just quickly review the conversation so we can see just how serious God is about freeing the people of Israel. In verse seven of chapter three, he says again, I have seen and known the suffering of my people. And he goes on to say in that same verse, I have come down to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them to a good and broad land. A few verses down in verse nine, he says, behold, the cry of the people have come to me and I have seen their oppression. And then God offers this sweet, this sweet and gracious invitation to Moses. He says, come. Moses, I will send you. So in other words, he says, I have heard, I have seen, I have known, and I have come. And Moses, I want you to come with me. Moses responds, like any man would, I think. Who am I, God, that I would go to Pharaoh? And God is like, Moses, bro, relax, right? I just told you, we're going together. You're going to be with me. And that calms Moses' nerves momentarily. The conversation goes on and God tells him his name. And by the way, y'all, God's name is super dope. If you weren't here last week for Pastor Spence preaching about the I am and God is, it's definitely worth going back and looking. But anyway, the conversation continues and God continues on the same line of thinking. He doesn't change his conversation topic with Moses. In verse 16, he says, I have observed what's being done to the people 
And Moses, I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of the land of Egypt to a different land, a better land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God turns to Moses and he says, and when you go to the people of Israel, Moses, they will listen. I will make sure of it. Pharaoh won't listen at first, right? I'm going to have to twist his arm. I'm going to stretch out my hand. I'm going to strike Egypt with wonders. And believe it or not, Moses, you all will plunder Egypt on your way out. God is like, Moses, this thing that I'm going to do in and among you, it's going to be awesome. So go, Moses, I will be with you and you will be with me. And chapter three concludes, and what I want to draw our attention to here, saints, is that this is clearly a work of God. How many times does God say, I will, in this paragraph? It's over and over and over again, and we see that Moses is really just kind of along for the ride. And his primary responsibility will be to trust God. And so we can conclude that God didn't need Moses to free the people of Israel. He could have done it any number of ways. And we can also conclude, brothers and sisters, that if God didn't need Moses, Moses, he doesn't need you. And he doesn't need me. But there is something beautifully freeing for us in not being needed by God. His sufficiency means that his dealings with us are not flowing from a place of desperation or a place of necessity. His dealings with us rather flow from a place of desire and grace. And that's where this whole thing is going. That's where we will end up today. What if God doesn't need you could be a very scary question, right? Because to be needed is to be valued. To be needed is to, is to secure one's position, but if God doesn't need us, and yet he engages us, yet he deals with us, yet he puts up with us, oh friend, it must be because he wants us. And so, with that as our backdrop, we dive into our first point. And that is, if God doesn't need us, he can work out our baggage as he uses us. Let's pick back up the conversation in verse one. All this has happened and God answered and Moses answers God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. I really like the way the CSB puts it. It phrases it as a question. It says, well, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? And whether this is a question or a statement, it equally contradicts what God had just told him earlier in the conversation in verse 18 of chapter 3. God says, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And so apparently Moses was doing that thing, you know, when somebody's having a conversation with you, but you're not really listening, you're just waiting to give your rebuttal. The God of the universe is standing in his present, making Moses promises about the future, and Moses is stuck in the fears of his past. 
God has promised, I will do it, Moses. And Moses responds, but what if I let you down again? Imagine with me that you're watching the making of this film. You're watching the making of a movie with the greatest director of all time, the greatest story writer of all time, the greatest lead actor of all time, and therefore this will without question be the greatest movie ever created. But as you're watching the making of this film, there's this extra, and he's consumed with himself. He keeps slowing the production of the movie because he keeps yelling out, cut! Can you see it? Imagine that guy. Cut! I I think my shoe's untied. Cut! Are are you sure you're filming my good side? Cut! I I think I forgot my line. Like, bro, you don't got that many lines. Like, you don't have to yell cut. God is the director. God is the author. God is the climax of all of human history. He's got it under control. The question is not, can I do this? The question is, will you trust him? The issue for Moses was he feared as if he had the lead role. He yelled cut because he thought that this work depended on him. He feared something. And a deep dive into the text shows us what's really going on here. Let's pick back up in verse one and see if we can see it. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. Just really quickly, y'all, this right here is the moment where historians concluded that Moses was black. Right? Do y'all see his black tendencies right here on display? Right? He didn't ask no questions. He saw the stake. He took off. Like, that's what I would have did. That's a fact. But I digress. Let me jump back into the text. Let me, let me jump back in. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Okay. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And why did God do this? Why did God teach, show Moses the staff becoming a snake? Verse five says that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And again, we ask the question, why does God do this? What is God doing? What is he showing to Moses? Verse eight says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. And the water that you take shall, and that the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So do you all see this? Three signs, one purpose, all that they may believe. But why does God go to such lengths to teach Moses 
that they will believe. Right? Like God has said, I will, I will, I will, I will. And somehow the conversation has shifted to being about they. So let's ask the question, who is they? They are the people of Israel. Like, isn't it crazy that in this entire section of scripture, the Pharaoh isn't even mentioned once, right? Like Moses isn't pressed about Pharaoh, he's pressed about they. He's pressed about the people of Israel. But like, let's ask ourselves the question, let's put ourselves in Moses' shoes. Why do they matter so much? Well, if we unpack it, Moses is Hebrew-Egyptian, right? He had been rejected by his own people after, get this, after he went out on a limb and committed murder on their behalf, right? Like, Moses has some baggage, and his baggage is powerful enough to prevent him from believing that they would ever accept him. You see, Moses cries out, God, they won't believe me because in the back of his mind, he has the words that happened in chapter two, right? He's trying to fit in. He's trying to be one of them. He's trying to break up a fight. And they're like, who made you, who made you God and judge over us, right? Like, bro, you don't, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. And so Moses feels the weight of his baggage, right? He feels the weight of his failure. He feels the pressure of his people. He feels the burden of his past. He feels the disapproval of they. They represented his identity crisis. Am I Egyptian or Hebrew? They represented his greatest pain, the rejection of his people. They represented his greatest mistake. Prince turned murderer turned exile. They said, you don't belong. And Moses, he believed them. And so when God comes along with this work for Moses to do, Moses says, I'm too old, too Egyptian, too irrelevant. God, I have too much baggage. They won't believe me. But let's look. Let's look at the gracious response of God. God starts in chapter three, right? Like he's trying to get ahead of it. He knows this is Moses' greatest fear. And he says, Moses, I promise they will believe you. And Moses is like, nah, nah, they won't. And so God gave him three miracles for the faith of the people, yes, but also for the faith of Moses. With each miracle, God is proving himself to be trustworthy. He's coaxing Moses gently out of this place of disbelief, and he's just calling him, Moses, come, son, take a step. Moses was petrified to return back to his people, but God refused to let him stay there. Because here is what God knows, right? He knows that because he doesn't need us, he can work out our baggage as he uses us. Simultaneously, he doesn't need to distinguish or separate them. And he has this luxury because he knew the success of the mission did not depend on Moses. It depended on God. What might the Lord be calling you to? Mercy. Is he calling you to get into biblical community? To walk alongside of brothers and sisters? so that you can go after a singular aim and singular purpose, giving your life away for the sake of the gospel? 
Is he calling you to repent and confess your sin to brothers and sisters so that you can stop living in the dark and being a punching bag for the enemy? Is he calling you to call that individual that you know you hurt, but your pride won't allow you to apologize? What is God calling you to do? And maybe the better question is, what are you afraid of? What baggage is holding you back? See what's happening with Moses. By focusing on what they might say, he was diminishing reality for the sake of hypotheticals. And God is calling Moses to lift his eyes up from the wreckage of his past to the God of fire who stood before him. Can I just, can I just talk to you for a second? You who think that you have too much baggage to be used by God, God's not waiting on you to fix yourself. He's waiting on you to trust him. Get this mercy, God doesn't need you. He wants you. And because God doesn't need you, he can work out the baggage that you have as he uses you. What if, right? That's the question we're asking all morning. What if? So what if the healing that you think you need in order to do the thing that God is calling you to do will only come through doing the thing that God has called you to? What if healing comes through obedience or better yet, What if healing comes through going with God to Egypt? I'm not saying run headlong into whatever you think that God might be calling you to, but what I am saying is walk with God, take a step, and see what he does. Do y'all want to know a secret? Moses never got the thing that he thought he needed. The people never accepted him. All throughout Exodus, they are trying to kill him or replace him or they're constantly grumbling against him. But get this, this is the beautiful thing. In Moses' obedience, in him going with God, he recognized that he didn't need the acceptance of they because he already had the acceptance of God. Hear me, mercy. You don't need to undo your baggage. God can do that, right? Like God didn't even, he never undid the baggage of Moses. The people never accepted him. But what God did do was he healed the damage that his baggage caused. God doesn't need you to get your stuff together. Will we trust him? Dan Ortland says it like this. He said, God loves to respond to his people if they would but dump in his lap the ruin and wreckage of their lives. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifelong time of sin. His power runs so deep that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. This is our God. This is how Moses went from covering his face when he saw the burning bush to pleading with the Lord to show him his glory on the mountain. God wasn't just concerned about what Moses was doing. He was concerned about who he was becoming. 
He didn't just want to work through Moses. He wanted to work in him. And the man, once frozen by the fears of his past, became a man who was formed by them for the work of God. I say it again. If God doesn't need us, he can work out our baggage as he uses us. But Moses wasn't there yet. Right? Like, Moses, Moses still has baggage. His response to God's gracious miracles, to God's display of power, it wasn't, wow, God, I get it now. Let's go. Right? He actually responds with disbelief and rebuttal. In essence, he yells cut again in verse 10. Verse 10 says, But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. So Moses' first rebuttal is, God, I'm not the one you need. I have too much baggage. And the second rebuttal was, God, I'm not the one you need. I'm too inadequate. God, I'm not the one you need. I have too much weakness. And again, tied up in Moses' assumption, tied up in Moses' rebuttal, is that God needs, right? Like as if God can only use finished products devoid of weakness, as if God is somehow limited by our capacity. Like what is Moses's issue here? Was he shy? Did he stutter? Did he lose his command of Egyptian? The text doesn't really give us that, but what we do know is that God didn't see it as a limiting factor. Right? Like, if God is indeed needy, then Moses' rationale makes perfect sense. Right? Like, this is a diplomatic mission. It would need a public spokesperson with oratory skills. Right? He's going to have to persuade the most powerful man in the world to do something he's not really interested in doing. So it doesn't make sense to send somebody with heavy lips to do this difficult task. But if God doesn't need us, he can work through our weakness for the sake of our good and his glory. As we examine the text, there's something very interesting going on here. Notice what Moses says in verse 10. He says, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, God, I ain't never been able to talk good. And by the way, we've been standing here for 15 whole minutes and you ain't fixed my stutter. Right? Like, Moses is questioning God. Like, God, have you even thought this through? Like, am I really your only option? Because this is not a great plan. I don't talk good. Like, don't you think somebody else would be better for this? And if, if I am your last resort, could you at least fix my mouth? You guys ever find yourself here? complaining against the way that God created you or asserting that if at least he will use you, at least he can fix you up first. God, I've got so much weakness, but hear how God responds. It may shock you. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God's response to Moses' frustration 
is a paradigm-shifting reality. He says, Moses, don't you get it? I made you that way. God asserts that he is not only the creator, but he is creator, sustainer, and the sovereign of all creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things, and he is holding all things together. So when we're tempted, brothers and sisters, to complain about our weakness, to complain about our inadequacies, hear God's response. I made you just as you are. Your weakness that brings you insecurity and causes you anxiety, it was given to you intentionally by God. So let me say it plainly. God made you weak. Just sit in that for a moment. Name your weakness. Identify it. Grasp it. What if it's okay to be weak? What if we don't have to cover up our incompetencies that we don't want people to see? What if we don't have to numb our pain? What if we don't have to use all our strength pretending like we have it all together? The God who only gives good gifts created us with the blessed endowment of weakness. And he makes us weak for our good and his glory. This is the testimony of all of scripture. Consider with me Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, excuse me. So Paul is like, he's like slick bragging, right? He's like, yo, I know a dude, it was me by the way, who got carried up into the third heavens, right? Like Paul was in a league of his own, but then listen to what he says in verse seven. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so he concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This passage is replete with the benefits of weakness. We see here, first, that weakness teaches humility. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me a thorn, which he goes on to describe as weakness. So that thing that you hate about yourself, it's teaching you something. Through our infirmities, we learn of the perfection of God. Weakness draws us near to our creator and it teaches us humility. Moses' stuttering and stammering reminds him that this freedom of the Israelite people will not come because of his oratorical skills, not come because of his eloquence, but because of the power of God. And God makes us weak so that we may know the grace upon grace 
he bestows upon the humble. And y'all, humility is, is just one of the many benefits of weaknesses Paul highlights, right? In weakness, we learn the sufficiency of God's grace. In weakness, we understand the joy of dependency. In weakness, we hear the perfect power of God is made available to us. And so Paul concludes, I'm glad I'm weak. I will boast in it because my weakness doesn't actually make me weak. It makes me strong. Hear me, friend. It is good for you to be weak. And it is also, as we will see, for the glory of God. Moses' weakness would lead him to depend on God in a way that only the slow of speech would understand. God tells Moses in verse 12, as we continue in the story, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So do you see this? Do you see how Moses leaning into his weakness will call him to, cause him to fall into the strength of God? And do you see the outcome of this, right? Like, because he is leaning into his weakness, all that he accomplishes would lead to the glory of the everlasting creator. Let us remember the words of Jesus. In John chapter 9, it says that he is passing by a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why was he born weak, Lord? And we hear the echoes of Yahweh in Jesus' response. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you hear it? Who made man's mouth? Who makes him seeing or blind? Is it not I? And why does God make us weak? So that he can work through our weakness for his glory. Let me ask you a question, Mercy. Who gets the glory when the deaf hear? Who gets the glory when the blind see? Who gets the glory when the inarticulate and the inadequate move the hearts of kings with their words? Who gets the glory when we're willing to fail? Who gets the glory when we embrace our limits or we see we don't have to pretend like we have it all together? Brothers and sisters, who gets the glory when cancer breeds contentment? When the barren continue to pray, when the widow finds comfort in the cross, when depression leads to desperation for Jesus? Who gets the glory when we lean into our weakness? Is it not I, says the Lord? We hear so often, glorify God with your strength. Focus on your strength. But what we hear here and what the Bible teaches is that we must also glorify God with our weakness. Because God doesn't need us. He can work through our weakness for the sake of our good and his glory. After all this, Moses is blown away, right? After all this, he says, yes, Lord, send me, I'll go. 
No, it's not what the text says. After all this, Moses says, oh Lord, please send somebody else. That boy's stubborn. And the anger of the Lord is kindled. Y'all want to know what the issue is? Moses is still not seeing God rightly. God had sought to compel him with promises. He had sought to grant him confidence with power, give him comfort with his very presence, and Moses still doesn't believe. And the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses because he simply refuses to trust God. Yes, the scripture teaches us that God is slow to anger, but slow does not mean he will never arrive. But notice why God is angry, right? He's not like, dang it, Moses, you heavy-lipped fool, right? Like, it's not the weakness of Moses, but the posture of Moses that angers God. And here we learn two really important things about God. We learn that it is not our brokenness that angers God, but our refusal to trust him with it. And secondly, and equally as important, we learn the abundant provision of God even in the midst of our disbelief that drives him to anger. I'm wrapping up, but can we just spend a couple minutes gazing at the beauty and the grace of our God? The text concludes, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff, which with you shall do the signs. At the conclusion of this text, we see the magnificent grace of God on full display through his provision of Aaron to Moses even in the midst of his anger. Like, why doesn't God move on, right? Like, we know he doesn't need Moses. Why doesn't he just find somebody else? God's response, even in his anger, tells us something about him. Namely, that though he doesn't need us, he wants us. This is the great conclusion of this story. If God doesn't need us, but still comes after us with such fervor and passion and determination, then he must want us. He must want us, brothers and sisters, despite our fears and our weaknesses and our mistakes. We hear in John 3:16, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as we ring the bells of this Old Testament narrative, we hear the clear and resounding echo of the gospel. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Your baggage? Yeah, I'll take that. Your weakness? Yeah, I'll take that too. And the profound nature of God's love and desire was put on full display 2,000 years ago as he stretched himself upon a cross. Not out of obligation, not out of necessity, but out of a sure desire for us to be with him forever. 
Jesus Christ, wrapped in flesh, took on the punishment for our sin that we deserved. In doing so, he received the full brunt of God's anger. And like Aaron, he was God's provision to us despite our sin, weakness, and disbelief. And he purchased for us reconciliation back to the Father. And he promises to us eternal life for all who trust and believe. Jesus, the Son of God, lived the life we could not live. Died the death we deserved. Y'all, he rose from the dead. What an incredible reality for sinners who needed a savior. God saw Israel's need and he met it. And he does the exact same thing for us. So trust him, mercy. Trust him enough to take a step. Trust that he can work out your baggage. Trust that he can work through your weakness. Thank you, Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, as we transition into communion, oh God, we need you. We need your grace. We need your presence. We need your patience. You are good to us, Lord. Thank you that you don't require us to be perfect or strong. Thank you, Lord, that you meet us right where we are and that you love us. So, God, we trust you. We remember now your perfect sacrifice on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. If you didn't have an opportunity to grab your elements, we'll give you a second to do that. Scripture tells us that on the night in which he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples, the men he had been walking with, sharing his life with, caring for, the men that he knew would desert him in just a couple of hours. He shares this final meal with them and he tells them, As often as you do this, remember, remember me. And so we, as the church, take this ordinance passed down to us through years of faithful leaders. And we remember Jesus. We remember that he has been faithful. We remember that he has done everything necessary for our salvation. So, brothers and sisters,
brothers and sisters, as we remember our need for God, take the bread and eat. This is his body broken for us. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my new covenant promise. This is my blood poured out for you. The blood of Jesus was poured out for you. This is what we remember, that we have been united to Christ. We remember that he has done the work that he cried out, it is finished on our behalf for all who trust and believe. So brothers and sisters in Christ, take the cup and drink. God, we trust you. We thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, even on a moment where many of us are hurting and brokenhearted, we remember your faithfulness and we remember the cross and we remember that you were coming back to get us, that we do not need mourn as those who have no hope. For we have hope in our risen Savior. So be exalted, O God, as we worship. We pray all this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen.